Welcome to Living from the Soul. This is your host, Sam Tarode, and today I'm happy to be speaking with Tracy Owens Loud. Tracy combines the skills of life coach, spiritual counselor, and energy healer. She helps people gain confidence, overcome addiction, alleviate stress, increase vitality, and reach their full potential. Tracy leads retreats and works with individuals at her office in Atlanta or anywhere in the world through online sessions. She also has free guided meditations and other resources on her website, rememberyourtruth.com. I highly recommend Tracy's services, and I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Hello! Hey, Tracy. Good morning. Good morning, Sam. Well, you and I were on a meditation retreat together last year when I got the idea for starting this podcast. And I know I talked to you at that time. My big question was trying to find something I could do working with other people because I've been a freelancer on my own for 20 years. And the last 10 years of that have been just self-publishing, writing my own books instead of working for other companies. So Mm -hmm. I'm an introvert and I enjoy that overall, but I, even I reach a point where I need to be working with other people. I gotcha. I gotcha. This is a beautiful way to do that and to reach out and be in conversation with people. I've uh, listened to a couple of your other conversations and you have such a beautiful way of, of being connected and uh, present, very present and asking the questions that are, that call cause introspection. And I think that your introversion also allows people to come out of their own shell a little bit, which is really beautiful. So yay. (laughs) Well, thank you. That's great to hear. You're welcome. Now you're in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you a lifelong Georgian? No, actually, um, I was born and raised in Mississippi. Uh, I haven't lived in Mississippi since I was 18 years old. Left pretty quickly, um, as soon as I could kind of thing. It was one of those situations. From Mississippi, I worked on cruise ships and private yachts down in the Caribbean, Uh, quite a bit of extensive travel in that arena. It led me both east and west coast. So I lived in South Florida for a number of years and then made my way back out to California and lived there for about three and a half years. I've only been in Atlanta for 10 years, so 2011. February, actually March the 1st, 2011 was when I moved to Atlanta. Well, as people can tell, you've hung on to your Southern accent despite living all over. That's for sure. It, it, it shifted when I lived in California and it kind of, I've lost a lot of it. But then right here in Georgia, it has come back full force I mean, from the moment I moved here, it was just immediate. And it's like, okay, well, you know, and at one point I tried to, uh, to change it. You know, I tried to like focus on, you know, have it. And I was like, you know, it's not important. Mm-hmm. What's important is that I can just be my authentic self and I can sound how I sound and I can show up how I show up. And if people love it, great. And if they don't, that's okay too. <laughs> yeah. You can help improve the reputation of Southerners around the nation. There we go. And so it is. (laughs) (laughs) Or change the expectations. I know you, meeting you, you certainly defied my expectations. Just looking at you, I would think maybe a real estate agent or a 
you know, Southern lady hosting tea parties, <laughs> but, uh, but no, you're into very uh, exciting and esoteric and unusual things. That is the truth. And thank you so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> so what is a, a typical week for you? What kind of work are you doing on a regular basis? Mm -hmm. So gosh, a typical week. That's so interesting. Um, so what the work that I'm doing on a, on a regular basis is I work with individuals, um, mostly individuals with thought transformation, shifting their mindsets, moving away from limiting beliefs, shifting away from anxiety and fear. Uh, I work with many who deal with addictions, alcoholism, etc. And so a lot of uh, my weeks look like I have a schedule where I'm working with anywhere from four to six clients in a day. And we're working uh, usually in 90 minute sessions and we come together and we just, we do a lot of talking, a lot of moving through limiting beliefs gaining greater understandings of what it is that's happening in our thought processes that could hold us back from really stepping into our authentic selves. And then um, I also incorporate energy work, um, frequency work, support with, as you said, more esoteric support where we're working with the physical body, we're working with the emotional body, the energetic body, the mental body and also the spiritual body. So I take a very spiritual approach in all of the work that I do. So that typical week is four days a week. I'm working anywhere from four to six clients in a day and we are moving lots of energy. And then I take a couple of days where I am centering and focusing on myself and really um, tuning into my meditation practice and all of the the rituals that I do on a regular basis, but I, I spend extra time on those on, a, you know, the, let's say my Sunday and Monday. Also Sunday is my family time with Tulio. So we have an opportunity to ground ourselves in and get really connected in that space. But it's there for me, there really is no typical week because on top of working with individuals, I also teach classes. And so I have breathwork classes that are go ongoing. I have women's groups that are ongoing. I have retreats that I'm planning. For example, uh, I have a retreat, a women's retreat at the end of this month down in Santa Rosa, Florida. And we've got 12 women coming together. And so I'm in the process of creating all the plans and details for all of that fun stuff. And then, you know, later on in the first quarter, I've got a couple of other retreats that I'm making plans for. So is there a typical week? Probably not, but I incorporate a lot of details and a lot of opportunities within a week. <laughs> Great. You gave me a lot of ideas of things to ask you about of what you do in particular, but to start, what was your childhood like? Were you interested in these realms of the spirit and the mind? Yes, absolutely. So um, as a young child, growing up in, in North Mississippi, I was the youngest of four daughters, grew up in a really close-knit family where um, my mom's mother was very much a part of our lives. And my grandma, um, her name was Flossie, she had um, 
incredible, incredible intuitive gifts and abilities. They wouldn't have called them intuitive gifts or abilities then, but now as I look back, I really see where a lot of my gifts came from and came through directly connected to my lineage. Um, I learned a lot from her as a child about how to operate through the frequency of love. But as I go back to thinking about as a young child, I came into this world with really unique gifts. I didn't know at the time that they were unique gifts. I thought everyone could see spirit. I thought everyone could talk to the fairies. I thought everyone could, you know, um, see the people that weren't here in physical form, you know, family members and whatnot. I later learned around 12 years old that that wasn't the case. <laughs> uh, in my, you know, from probably five to six years old, I had an ability to see things and have conversations with beings that um, kind of probably frightened my family, probably, you know, startled them a bit. And uh, they, li they like to call, you know, my beings, uh, my pretend friends. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I had a lot of pretend friends. And as we moved on to, you know, 10, 11, okay, you know, my pretend friends were, they were pretty present. But at 12, they said, you know, at 10 and 11, it's okay. But at 12, 13 years old, it's not okay. Yeah, it's like you freak people out, you know, however they said it. It was more along the lines of, it can be startling to people, it can be frightening. Um, really, probably what they were saying is it's frightening us. <laughs> Yeah. And so we want to not have this experience. So through that process, what I heard as a 12 year old child was, I'm not okay. How I am is not okay. How I show up in this world, what I can see and experience is not okay. Well, then if I'm not okay, then I need to do something differently. And so I did, I did. And I went down a path, what many would call destructive path at age 13, starting down a totally different um, journey that I have spent uh, a good 30 years <laughs> reversing, if you will. <laughs> what do you think uh, opens a child up or causes a child such as you to have this open consciousness? I know I've I never uh, heard voices or saw spirits. So. Mm -hmm. I personally believe that all children uh, come into this world highly tapped in and tuned in. Uh, you know, when we think about, I don't know if you are familiar, I'm sure you, uh, you've heard the terms, if you're not super familiar with the terms chakras, energy centers, vortexes. Mm -hmm. And at the crown of our head, as we're born with small babies, we have this, this soft spot in the crown of our head. And this would be from many Eastern philosophies, what we would call the, the crown chakra. And that this crown comes in, this baby comes into this world and it's wide open. It's wide open, soft spots, wide open. And it's so tapped in and it's so tuned in and connected because those children don't have the limiting beliefs. The children don't have the life experiences from this lifetime, at least, that could impact them in any way that could um, prevent them from believing all that they see to be true, all of the realms of possibility, all of the dimensions, right? So they're, as children, they're just moving through life and, and experience everything with tremendous curiosity. 
and excitement and enthusiasm and, and awe. And then life experiences happen. And at five, six years old, even younger sometimes, depending on life experiences for an infant, they start experiencing life in their own unique way. And they start developing their own concepts and minds. And they start developing coping mechanisms for how to navigate through life. Oh, well, if this didn't work, then I'll do this. And if this doesn't work, then I'll do this. And so then we, we start practicing utilizing those coping mechanisms. We start observing our parents and how our parents are navigating the earth, how our grandparents and our mentors and whatnot. And so then we start like taking on ideals that may or may not be true. And in that process, I feel like we, we begin to close off some of that connection to spirit, some of that connection to what we would call source energy. And so, you know, yes, there is, is a true statement from my belief that, that children do come in wide open, completely tapped in. I believe that there are different, um, uh, where we're, we're looking at, you know, different crystal children, star children, rainbow children, etc. And And so I believe that children are coming in today in more advanced states because our planet really needs them. Mm-hmm to be coming in and in those open states and remaining in those open states for longer and longer periods of time. That's a whole other conversation that I just opened up there. But anyway. (laughs) Yeah. And it could be that I had a more open consciousness from birth to age four or so, but I just don't remember those years at all. Mm -hmm. And that's so often, it is so often what I hear people say, um, they don't recall having those types of magical, what I would, you know, many would call magical experiences. And for me, you know, I'll share this part. Um, it, again, it may open up a whole other different conversation, but at 13 years old, after I had taken on this idea that I'm not okay being this way, well, then I need to do something differently. I picked up alcohol and drugs as a way to cope, as a way to not be that. Okay, well, then I've got to shut all of that down. I've got to turn all of that off somehow or the other. I've got to not be that. And so as I look at my journey in through alcoholism and addiction into now recovery of 18 plus years, I recognize that moment in 2013 when everything reopened for me, everything. It was as if the crown chakra just completely opened wide up all over again. And everything started coming into my world like I was drinking through a fire hose. And it became overwhelming at that point because I had not been, over all those years, had not been developing it had not been embracing all the gifts that come along with it. So I had a lot of fear around all of that coming back into my experience. And so then it became a whole relearning process. Well, then how do I, okay, well, it's here now. I can't shut it off with alcohol and drugs because I'm living a sober life. And so then what do I do with it now? I guess I better learn how to navigate through this and utilize it in a way that God's spirit universe kind of designed for me to utilize it. Hmm, what a concept. Well, then I think I'll work with it. 
and I learn how to do this so that it feels balanced and harmonious for me, but it also can benefit others along the way. Hmm. Sounds like a superhero origin story, or you're one of the X-Men discovering your powers. <laughs> there we go. I like to call them my superpowers, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, when you realize, oh, I have these gifts, I need to train myself and learn how to use them. How did you know who to seek out or where to find training? Yeah, great question. I lived, so living here in Atlanta, um, I had a um, a position at a spiritual center. And I found myself feeling really bogged down um, with all of the to-dos and all of the people that were coming and going and coming and going throughout the spiritual center any given Sunday, hundreds and hundreds of people. And I started noticing that I felt more and more drained every single Sunday. And that's what became the catalyst for really need to to work on grounding myself and understanding my own energetic field and, and how to work with this so that I don't feel just exhausted all the time. So I really, at that point, I really didn't know where to go, but what I, what I thought immediately was, okay, so if I'm feeling drained and I slept eight hours last night, then there must be something else going on energetically. I need to learn how to, um, to at least clear my own energy field so that I'm not absorbing and taking on other people. I would consider myself to be a highly sensitive empath. And so I already knew that part about myself. So I just thought maybe this was just more of, okay, maybe I'm just absorbing and I'm absorbing other people. And so I went down a path of just a, a simple, you know, intuitive development one on one and went in and said, you know, I really don't know why I'm here. And yet I, I know that there's something going on. Now, let me back up for just a second. So I had the big awakening in 2013, but this, the grounding work and the energy work and working at the spiritual center came before the big opening hmm. because I was working at the spiritual center. I knew something was off. I knew that I needed some help with something. I went to this 101 intuitive development. I started this process. That was what actually helped me reach the place of becoming wide open again. I started learning how to ground myself. I started learning how to clear my own energy field. And as I did, the more I would clear, the more I would open. The more I would clear, the more I would open. Then all of a sudden, one morning at 3 a.m., everything just became wide open again. Yeah. Mm. Here in this house, actually. <laughs> That's something I've learned about myself as I've gotten older, probably in my late thirties and beyond learning that I'm very empathic. I tend to absorb other people's energy. Mm -hmm. If there's a stressful situation or someone who's upset, I take that on and it would usually manifest in terms of a neck pain or shoulder pain. Yeah. But my childhood was sort of the opposite of yours in that not only did I not hear from spirits or, or see any forms like that, but I was in church and being taught about angels and demons that these exist. And, you know, I never saw evidence of that. And I wondered, I had plenty of nightmares about demons uh, because that was being taught. And I think that was a very harmful uh, teaching for, for a child to hear. 
And then there were many nights where I would pray, you know, God speak to me if I could just hear something or have some bit of proof. So it's interesting to me that that was, uh, that was my path and it perhaps why I have a naturally more skeptical mind. And even now that I'm, that I have experienced spiritual things, I'm interested in these topics. I still bring a sort of uh, skeptical mind to it. Absolutely. And I think there's so many people that do. I, I brought my own level of skepticism to the table, you know, as a, as a 20, 30 something, still interested and intrigued by, you know, tarot readings and things of that nature in my early 20s. Um, got my first deck of tarot cards at, you know, at 21 years old and still have it and have learned a lot from that process. But you said something really key. In my upbringing, I grew up in a Christian, fundamentalist Christian, you know, household, Church of Christ, to be exact. And we were raised in, under that same kind of angels and demons, but more so heaven and hell. Yeah. And that, that concept of heaven and hell and, and, you know, this is good and this is bad and this is right and this is wrong and this is black and this is white kind of thing. And many, and probably to this day, many people that I grew up with would look at what I have experienced um, in my adult life and what I, the work that I do in my adult life. But many who grew up with me would look at that as, you know, maybe even demonic, mm -hmm. maybe even sacrilegious who knows maybe even fear that it's made up in some way I know it's been a real challenge uh, for me with my mom she doesn't understand necessarily um, the work that I do or or the way in which I communicate uh, the way that I you know operate in this world she she loves me and she appreciates me but she doesn't understand it per se. And so I've, I've navigated through that, trying to help her, you know, just share with her what, what I do and, and how I show up and what that, you know, the whole religious upbringing really plays into this because that judgment piece that we, you know, learned maybe in that religious upbringing, I have felt judged much of my life. And, and I recognize that I also, have judged my own process and my own path and how yeah. the decisions that I've made to, you know, to do the work that I'm doing, but it can, it, it was very, those teachings are very, very impactful. Yeah. And that skepticism is natural and it's normal. <laughs> and if we didn't have a, you know, a healthy level of skepticism, I'd be a little nervous for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was definitely taught that any spiritual experience outside Christianity is demonic. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's uh, seeing dead relatives or using uh, tarot cards or anything like that. And the demons, that piece certainly seemed a lot more real to me than the angels. <laughs> I actually remember as a teenager thinking, well, I don't know if God is real, but I certainly know the devil is real. Therefore, God must be real. <laughs> Do you think that is because of fear is stressed so much? Yeah, I think I think that it it is directly connected to fear being, you know, so much emphasis being placed on fear. I also it makes me think of in life, you know, you hear the a saying you can receive a dozen positive 
compliments, right? Mm -hmm. But you receive one negative remark, and which one are you going to remember mm -hmm. the most, right? Yeah. Mostly the negative one. It's the one that, yeah, I did all these great things. I'd had all these people said wonderful things, and yet there's this one person that, that said this thing, this negative thing about me. So when I think about that, it's like that same fear that goes into the heaven and hell concept, the demonic concept is also how we are programmed to remember and to hear certain information and to retain certain information. Does that make sense? Well, you mentioned the doctrine of hell or the teaching about hell being such a big part of your childhood. And I, yeah, I definitely resonate with that. It seems to me one of the most harmful beliefs, especially teaching children, you know, that human beings are worthy of eternal damnation and torment. How did that affect you? When I was six years old, I went into um, a Sunday school class and the teacher was talking about babies in China not ever being uh, uh, introduced to Christ. Mm. And that those babies, those children, those families who never had the opportunity to be introduced to Christ were automatically condemned to hell. Mm. And I was like, well, that just doesn't make sense to me. And I said that to the Sunday school teacher, this just doesn't make <laughs> sense to me. How on earth can a baby in China who's never known this being that we know is Christ be condemned to hell because they don't have any way of knowing how that they won't have any way of finding this out? And the teacher said, Tracy, she need call me by my full name, Tracy Delane. We don't ask about things that we don't understand. Hmm. And I said, but I thought that's why we ask questions so that we can understand. <laughs> and I was pretty much that I pretty much set a tone for Sunday school from that six-year-old self going forward. <laughs> and that started that big question mark for me of something's not right. Something, there's something more going on than meets the eye. And I want to know what it is. I want to explore what that is. And so, you know, I tell many people, I'm so grateful for the foundation of Christianity. I'm so grateful for what I learned about morality and integrity and operating from that, um, that Christ consciousness perspective. But there are so many other ways of being that also um, have influenced my life in very, very positive and powerful ways. And as far as the heaven and hell, I have lived hell right here. In this physical body i created it yeah that's what i've come to believe is thinking of hell as the state of mind or consciousness mm -hmm. and uh i think it's created by fear when we're in a state of fear we're in hell and heaven is the state of love yes yes absolutely what do you think in terms of the afterlife do these concepts of heaven and hell have any meaning to you you know, that was one of the pieces in, um, as I, as I really started to embrace my gifts, I started really looking at my upbringing around, there is this place that beings go, that spirits go 
because they've done bad things. And there is this place that spirits go because they've done great things. And then, you know, I, I back out of that, that whole notion that I've created hell right here on this planet. And I've, you know, in this body, and I've also created heaven and I can create those states of mind uh, simultaneously. So that leads me to believe that leaving this physical body, we also are at choice as to what we create in the afterlife, in the um, other realms. I do believe, you know, just based on what I've experienced, non-physical beings that I've connected with and, and asked su such questions, that there is a period of time once we leave our physical body where we go into a life review, a process mm -hmm. where we explore our life in its entirety. And in that space, if we choose to create, we choose to experience a tremendous amount of pain in that life review, we'll experience a tremendous amount of pain in that life review. Mm -hmm. If there's something that we can learn from experiencing the pain of our decisions, we will do that. If we're also meant to experience bliss or we choose to experience bliss in that life review, we can also experience that. And that it's all relative and it's all important and it's all necessary for what comes after that. Yeah, I'm very interested in near-death experiences. So I've read a lot of people talking about this life review they experience. And it's made the Catholic idea of purgatory make a lot more sense to me where souls are purged as they leave this physical realm. I think that religions get so much into defining everything and trying to set it in stone. I think that's where they go astray. But as a concept, purgatory makes a lot of sense. It does. It does. And often I have people um, talk with me about that. You know, there's so much, uh, so many beliefs that are imprinted upon people <laughs> around this idea of purgatory and, and, you know, it's, it feels like as we talk more about the life review experience with them, they have an, a little bit of ease in their mindset and in their hearts that someone's not in this, you know, awful, awful realm that they can't get out of. You know, that there's actually, if there, are, if there is discomfort and pain that we might label it as discomfort and pain here in the physical realm, it's very different there. Mm -hmm. But if they are moving through that experience, there's a reason that they are. There's, there's knowledge to be gained. There's information and insight that's happening for them so that they can perhaps make a decision to either come back into a reincarnated state or to assist in the multidimensional world simultaneously. Who knows? Yeah. I know my parents have had a lot of distress believing that uh, family members of theirs are now in hell. So it, I've tried to give them some books like Rob Bell, the Christian theologian, has a book called Love Wins. Uh, there's another theologian, David Bentley Hart, who has a book called That All Shall Be Saved. So even from a Christian perspective, there are some arguments uh, these days arguing against this concept of eternal hell. Yes, Rob Bell is an incredible author, and, and I've read uh, that book as well. I have not read the other one, but I'll go back and and take a look at that. That sounds interesting. I'm always looking for material that I can just direct people to if they want to explore, you know, in their own way and find what works best for them. 
well, getting back to this life and how to how to improve it and live better. You mentioned that you work with the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual aspects of life. Is there one that predominates or are we a balance of those aspects? I think that it feels like there's a balance of all. I believe that all make life harmonious. Um, when there's an imbalance, what caused me to pause and really tune into to how I wanted to respond to that, where the imbalance comes in is when we are in our, in our mental body more than we are in our emotional body, our express, expressive states, or we are um, ignoring or resisting or blocking our spiritual body, or our energetic body is not um, aligned because we we haven't really brought ourselves into a, a process of of aligning ourselves with what we say, think, feel, and do. Right. So it's like there's there's so many so many components to bringing ourselves into greater balance and harmony. The ideal situation that they're all equal, that they're all important, and that they're all um, necessary com- bodies, necessary components for living a an authentically evolved, enlightened life, if you will. But that's when we have those stagnancies, when we have those imbalances, when we have those challenges in life that stagnate us in any area, that's where people like myself can come in and assist people with with identifying the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions, or the actions that are preventing them from living in a greater balanced life. You talked about limiting beliefs. What's an example of that? What are limiting beliefs? Mm-hmm. Limiting beliefs are concepts, ideals, uh, thought processes that prevent us from stepping forward, growing ourselves, uh, having a different experience. If I were to say to you, you know, the sky is green, and you say, no, Tracy, the sky is blue. And I say, no, no, it's actually green. And you say, but what I see is blue. If I'm attached to that belief that it's only green and that you're wrong and that it's never going to be anything but green because it's green, then that is considered a form of limiting belief. Limiting beliefs can also be like the world is against me. The world isn't against us. The world is conspiring for our good. The universe is conspiring for our good at all costs, at all times, in all ways. But if I have a limiting belief that all things bad are happening to me and that everything is against me, then I might not be able to step outside of that that thought process and see, see things in a different way. See that, oh, wait, hold on a second. This thing that happened didn't happen to me. It happened through me and it happened for me so that I could level up, so that I could evolve, so that I could grow myself and tap into a new way of being. So again, multiple layers of limiting beliefs in that process that was coming up for me right now is most of the time people are operating, even myself, right? I'm not pretending to have it all figured out, but we operate with limiting beliefs that we don't even know that we have. Like, I know the limiting beliefs that I have, 
and I know the limiting beliefs that I don't have, but I don't know what I don't know as far as limiting beliefs are concerned. So it's about being willing to be open to a conversation that can help us untether ourselves, untether from those, those, uh, the lack and limiting beliefs that, that just simply hold us back in life. Yeah. What comes to mind for me is thinking, oh, I couldn't be one to do this. Like whether it's something like singing on stage, like, oh, I could never do that. That's what comes to my mind as an example of a limiting belief. Absolutely. Absolutely. And think about that. How many, so if that's a, a real experience for you or a real belief for you, oh gosh, I could never do that. I'd never allow myself to stand up and just, you know, vocalize, whatever. How many times has that stopped us? How many times have we, we stopped ourselves from standing up and just letting song flow out, right? What would happen if we allowed ourselves to just have the experience, right? Lean in, give voice to something. It can be very unnerving to, to break through some of those limiting beliefs. It can be very unnerving to have a conversation with someone about a limiting belief. But there's, there's really some really, really beautiful, expansive growth that can happen when we first identify it, the limiting belief, then we become willing to shift it. And then we lean into the transformation of it, which is the antithesis of the limiting belief itself. Yeah. Sing out. Let's sing out. <laughs> <laughs> That's one I did work to overcome. For the most part, I still have you know, some stage fright and anxiety, but it took, it took years, but I did get to the point of being able to sing in public. So I picked an easy one for myself when I named that belief. Nice. That's so beautiful. How about changing thoughts? A lot of times we have uh, repetitive negative thoughts about whether it's about a situation or about ourselves. How can we go about changing those? You know, changing a thought can sometimes be as simple as becoming aware that there's a need to change a thought. Hmm. And sometimes be as simple as that. You know, I, I like to, to say there's a sequence um, of events that happen in transformation. First is the awareness that there is a thought that needs to be changed that isn't serving us. Then there is a willingness to shift that thought. And then there's the actual application of it, the practice of shifting the thought. And we get to remember, you know, scientists say that we have 70 to 80,000 thoughts a day. There are different reports that it's less, that it's more, but let's just go for 70 to 80,000. 70 to 80,000 thoughts per day in these minds of ours, yeah? <laughs> and scientists also say that 90, 3% of them are repetitive. Mm. That means that a thought is repeating itself multiple times a day, day in and day out, kind of like a broken record. Mm. And if 93%, let's just go along with those terms, maybe different, 93%, if 93% are repetitive in nature, then are they creating something new? Are they of value? Do they provide something of quality to our lives? So if that 7% that is new thought, it is a new experience, a new, a new process, wouldn't we want to 
if we can identify that 93, 92, 93% are repetitive and they might be useless in nature, right? Wouldn't we wanna spend more time on the percentage of thoughts that we're having day in and day out that are productive, that are bringing, adding value to our lives? And so changing a thought becomes, a, you know, starting to become aware that if I am thinking that I am useless or I am thinking that I am not good enough or I'm thinking that, that people don't love me or I'm thinking that I don't want, I'm not wanted, whatever the thought or the belief is, then, the practice becomes the opportunity to find a new thought, access a new thought. So if I believe that I'm unworthy, then the truth is that I am worthy. And I start feeding, in essence, feeding that thought into my day-to-day practices where I start giving myself mantras and affirmations, things that reiterate my worthiness so that I can begin to retrain the neuropathways in my brain to create yet a new thought that focuses on worthiness rather than the repetitive thoughts that focus on unworthiness. Yeah, it reminds me of during my single years, for instance, when I was hoping to date, one of the exercises I did was writing down the good qualities I saw in myself or why, why would I be a good person to date? and to make a list of that. It was an exercise I think I found in a book somewhere, but that was very helpful. And also writing down the qualities of, okay, what is the kind of partner I'm looking for? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I had a a teacher back in 2007 give me an exercise similar to that. Um, We started with an ideal, we called it an ideal mate list. And this is actually something that I give to clients on a regular basis who are looking for Uh, loving romantic relationship in their lives. And so we start off with that list of, instead of focusing on self, which I kind of like that where we focus on self, but we bring it back around to that. So the the list starts with the qualities that we're looking for in in an ideal mate, the the characteristics, the the, uh, things that we identify in that person that feels important to us. Not so much about like, this is how they look and this is how they dress and this is what they smell like. Not that as much as, you know, that someone is humorous or that someone is um, a family person or that someone is, you know, great with finances. These are, you know, the types of things that, that, were, that, that are, can be important when we're identifying who we want to call forth. And then... Um, we go down that process of looking at like the top five non-negotiables out of the list that we've just created. Like what are the top five deal breakers? Like, okay, here's, here's the, this is a must. Like, you know, some, for some people that is a non-smoker for some people that is non-addictive, doesn't have addictive tendencies, you know, alcoholism or addiction, whatnot, whatever it may be, whatever those top five. And then that helps people navigate the dating world as they're looking for their mate, their partner, that they can remember what their top five non-negotiables are so that they can, as they're out there in the world, navigating the dating world, they're not calling forth people that are already not kind of fitting into the category of the top five non-negotiables, if that makes sense. It's not like we're saying, okay, let me check you off the list. You don't have this, you don't have this, you do have this, you do have this. It's more so about operating through a mindset that, okay, I'm looking for some 
things, someone specific. I'm looking for a certain way that I want to feel with this someone. I'm looking for someone that has similar values as I do. And so it kind of helps us in our selection process. And then the other layer of this ideal mate list is utilized in this way. So if I have made this list and I'm wanting to call forth the person that has ABC, one, two, three, X, Y, Z, am I that? Am I operating as that version of myself in this, in this lifetime? Okay, well, I've got this, 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 and this, but ooh, I'm not really good with finances, or ooh, I'm not really, I'm not really that charismatic, or you know, whatever. Then maybe that's where I have room to work. So it becomes a process of looking for and allowing and accepting and, you know, being willing to accept that person into our lives. But it's also about like, where can I up the ante in my own life so that I can be the best version of myself? Because like attracts like, and I want to be able, I want to be ready to attract that person into my world. So I utilize that gift to find the partner that I'm with now, which is how wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Now, did you have to compromise anything on your list today? One of the one of the pieces that we um, we both navigated, I identified in the list of the, the ideal mate, and then I also identified in my area where I still had some room to grow, and that was around being a good steward for finances, really navigating finances well, having uh, setting up multiple streams of income so that I'm not dependent upon one particular source of income, right? And also another part of that was really trusting in God's spirit universe to provide. So when it was directly connected to finances and Tulio, we both brought that in. And so that has been a practice for us. We've been working on that together and growing that together. It's been really beautiful. It's really beautiful to do. We've learned a lot. (laughs) Great. Well, this idea of drawing up a list of qualities you're looking for in a mate and drawing that in, that brings up the subject of manifestation, which has been a big, a popular topic the last 20 years or so. And of course, the book, The Secret, that came out around 2005, there was an explosion of interest. And there are a lot of exaggerations, I think, in the way it's been presented as, oh, we can just daydream about what we want or think about what we want and it will come into our lives. A quote that I like is from James Allen from the book, As a Man Thinketh. He said, we don't attract what we desire so much as what we are. So I thought that fit with what you were just saying about, you know, yeah, drop these list of qualities you want in a mate, but you also need to become that because like attracts like. Yes, absolutely. And that, and I learned that all along that whole process, I mean, from 2008, what I did each time I would date someone new is I would add to my list pieces and and components that were also important that I was wanting to attract, but also that I was identifying within myself that still needed room to grow, that still needed some areas of focus, personal focus, and then to attract that experience. But when I think of manifestation and I think of law of attraction, what has become really important for me in the last, I would say, 10 years or so is really focusing on the feeling. So one thing that I didn't say about the ideal mate list is when we were creating, when I coach people to go through that process of creating, also go through the process of what is it going to feel like? 
when you're in this relationship? What's it going to feel like when you are sitting on the couch beside your loved one and you just feel held and, and filled up and, and, and seen and, and acknowledged and all the things like, what is that going to feel like? And that was another really big part of it. Um, but when I think about manifestation today, I think about if I'm wanting to manifest, I'll just stick with the theme of, of greater, you know, abundance and prosperity. Um, it's great. It's wonderful to see dollar signs in your, you know, in your bank account and to see money coming in in all different ways. And abundance and prosperity is so much more than money. It's, it's gratitude and appreciation and, and love and connection and community and tribe. And it's so many different things. But at the end of the day, how does it feel when I am experiencing all of those things? And I think a lot of people can get kind of caught up in, well, how am I going to know how it feels if, I, if I'm not currently experiencing it, mm -hmm. right? And yet the feeling is what brings the experience on. It's like believing is seeing, not seeing is believing. Mm -hmm. Is that how it goes? You believe and then you see. Yeah. So it's, it's feel and then experience. Yeah, you feel it. You tap into it. You allow that. I allow that uh, feeling to come in and I imagine it in all of its color. And then I welcome the experience, the manifestation itself in. And do you find that in focusing on the feeling that you're looking to achieve, that you realize then I create that feeling that's coming from within me? Absolutely. Absolutely. A person might think, oh, I want to win a Grammy Award and then I'll be happy. Mm -hmm. but that happiness can only come from within. Absolutely. And that feeling can only come within. And so, and so tapping into what is that going to feel like when the Grammy comes, that's what allows us, that's what creates the vibrational frequency in our field that can then get, allow it to come even closer. Are the Grammys already exist in existence? Absolutely. They're everywhere. And if it's important for someone to call forth that Grammy, then there's something inside of their energetic frequency and field that must elevate in order for them to even recognize it when it's standing right beside them. The Grammy's right there. Okay, well then, but there's something more that's needed for me to now allow it into my experience. And I think people, you know, can also get caught up on that. Well, then what am I not doing that's allowing it into my experience? Deeper feeling, deeper understanding that this is, that this is a process. My goodness, I can't tell you how many times I've said, thank goodness everything I've ever prayed for didn't happen. Right? <laughs> that, that I, you know, would say, oh, I really just want this thing. I really want this thing to happen. Thank goodness it didn't all happen in the moment that I wanted it because my life would have been absolute chaos. Hmm. It would have been, it would have been that instantaneous manifestation would have wreaked havoc. You know, it's like that, what is that, that concept of people saying, you know, winning the lottery and if we're operating in the limiting and mindset and in the, the mindset of lack and poverty consciousness and we win that lottery and that's, you know, $3 million in our bank account, there's, you know, there are reports that say people, it doesn't last. People don't know how to navigate that financial prosperity and live in a prosperity consciousness and so therefore it just goes away so quickly 
because they're operating from that place of it's going to be taken away perhaps, or it's going to, and, and I got to spend it before something happens or, you know, whatever it may be that comes along with that. Yeah. I went off on a little tangent there, but it was just <laughs> the thought that came through. <laughs> okay. What is energy healing? How would you describe uh, working with people's energy? Energy healing. I really like to call it energy medicine. Um, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our energy. Everything is made up of energy. When we're talking about focusing on energy healing, it's about a revelation of truth, revealing of truth in the emotional body, the mental body, the spiritual body, or the physical body. Revealing, let me find my words there. It's like revealing a greater truth equals healing. Healing equals revealing truth. So it's accessing the untruths inside of the body so that we can, in the mental body, emotional body, physical body, spiritual body, it's, it's accessing the untruths so that we can bring ourselves into greater alignment with truth. So energy healing, it requires multiple, I want to say methods, multiple processes, multiple senses. Like when we think about our, our five senses of uh, taste, touch, smell, and hearing, it, it requires all of our senses to be involved in a process so that we can reveal truth and that we can free up any energies, thoughts, feelings, or emotions that are stagnant within our field that could be creating um, physical ailments or dis-ease, that could be creating um, disharmony, sadness, depression, anxiety. And so by utilizing all of the, the senses and utilizing different modalities and methods to access this information, I see it almost like a, a lifting up out of a hole so that everything can be revealed and seen for what it truly is so that it can then, then the transformation process can actually happen. That's probably a curious way for me to describe energy healing. I'm going to tune into what is energy healing for me as a person. Energy healing for me, when I'm thinking about experiencing energy healing, it is giving myself an opportunity to go within, to be introspective, to ask myself questions so that I can hear the answers that my body is wanting me to know. And that's my mental body, my emotional body, my spiritual body. Without giving myself that opportunity to go within, get quiet, listen to the, the you know, the uh, access, utilize all of the senses and access that information within myself. I, I might do what many call a spiritual bypass and that's briefly touch on a feeling that I'm having and then quickly move on to a next life experience without giving full credit, full presence of mind to what's actually happening in my life. And when I do that enough, I create what we call disease. 
and disharmony in the body. And then let's just say a month down the road, I'm agitated, irritated, and frustrated. And it has nothing to do with what actually is happening a month down the road. It's actually what's happened a month ago that I didn't give pause to, that I didn't bring to the surface and really fully see and allow myself to reveal greater truth around. How does that, does that make sense at all? <laughs> yeah, well, you said that healing is revealing truth. And I thought there's a lot to unpack or think about in that statement. Are you speaking of truth in terms of experiences, like my experiences that have happened to me, my truth, or what do you mean by revealing truth? Yeah. So the name of my company is called Remember Your Truth. And I created a company called Remember Your Truth because it's not about me telling you what my truth is. It's not about me telling you what your truth is. It's about each individual remembering what their truth is. And that truth can come in so many different ways. A truth can come as a feeling. A truth can come as a knowing. A truth can come as a teaching, something that we've been taught. And an unlearning of a truth can come when we allow ourselves to open to a greater truth, a revealing of truth that's underneath some sort of, of teaching that we've received in our lives. I think back to our, our religious conversation around how some of the beliefs and some of the truths that were given, you know, provided to me as a child, they were truths for someone. But that six-year-old sitting there in that Sunday school who said, you're telling me that a child in China is going to go to hell because they haven't ever met Jesus Christ? That doesn't feel like truth to me. So then that became a catalyst for me to understand what is my truth. We know what's true by the way it makes us feel. Right? We know the truth in the way that it makes us feel. So when I'm looking and focusing on energy healing, I'm unraveling the suppressed emotion so that I can access a feeling that helps me know what's, what's right and true for me. Yeah. So we can tell what's true by this feeling of resonance, how it feels in our body. I think some people have a fear that that means, oh, whatever feels good is true. How would you respond to that? Oh, oh gosh, that's so good. Um, truth doesn't always feel delicious. Mm. Yeah, truth can feel really unnerving. Um, it can feel really um, almost shocking to the system. It can, you've, if you've ever had an aha moment, aha moments can be aha, wow, oh, that's so expansive and so wonderful. Oh, aha, oh, wow, that is, whew, I've never thought of it quite that way before. But what I know is when we allow ourselves to drop into that feeling of truth, whether it is what we might perceive as positive or negative, there is tremendous expansion inside that moment of truth. And there's a glimpse that we get to tap into, which is what many of us call a new possibility. There's a new possibility available to us in that moment of truth, whether it feels good or whether it doesn't feel good. And what we do with that information in that moment, in essence, determines how we take our next step 
or how we navigate the next decision that's needing to be made in our lives. You have a great statement on your website that I typed in. It's, I believe that we all have the potential to discover and fulfill our life purpose, which is to feel good about ourselves and to be confident that we are living our lives to the fullest. Mm. <laughs> I love that. I wondered if you could unpack that a little more. Yeah, that, um, that truth for me <laughs> came through after one of the meditation retreats, like you spoke of earlier, I attended probably, gosh, that was probably five years ago, four years ago. And it came to me that we spend so much time and energy focusing on what is my purpose? What is my purpose? What am I here to do? Who, how can I help somebody? What is it? What is it? What does it all do? I'm not living my purpose. I'm not doing everything that I'm supposed to do. I'm not experiencing everything that I'm supposed to experience. You're like, no, no, no. Actually, right now, in this moment, where we are, what we're doing, how we're feeling, the conversation that we're having right now in this moment is on purpose. And when we can embrace the purpose in every moment and recognize that it's not something kind of like when you said, when I have the Grammy, I'll feel better, right? Or I'll feel happy. It's when, when I get to that purpose, then I'll feel like my life is fulfilled. What, what I, I came to me after that meditation retreat and in my journaling exercises, when I can embrace that my purpose is right now and that everything that I've done up until my life and up until this moment in my life has been on purpose. It served a purpose and it is on purpose. Then that frees me up so that going forward, I'm not looking for the contentment and the fulfillment and the success out there. I'm choosing the purpose right now. Hmm. And then in the choosing of the purpose right now, recognizing and acknowledging that this is purpose, then it helps me make better decisions for myself going forward that I want my, my future moments to be also on purpose. I don't think I asked you, what does the word soul mean to you? What do you think when you hear soul? Soul. I think of the movie that just came out. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a cute movie. Um, It was a good one. Yeah, it's great. Oh my gosh. Um, Soul the word that comes is spirit. I think that our, my soul is multidimensional as, as we all are from my perspective, that the soul is, is multidimensional and that it is um, not just something that is within a physical body, that it is an expression and that the soul has in that multidimensionality has higher aspects, higher experiences and expressions that we might not have experienced here in this physical form yet. So it's like the soul, the spirit is leading us to greater and greater experiences, leading us to greater and greater opportunities to say yes, leading us to greater and greater opportunities to remember our truth and to live life on purpose. I would say that my soul wants me to do things that my ego is scared to death of (laughs) in order to grow and experience more. Yeah, 
absolutely. And, and just like that moment when you said, you know, and I, and I, I superseded that fear of stage fright or whatever, you know, um, that I, I chose to allow myself to get on stage and sing. It's like that egoic aspect that says, Oh, but you got to keep yourself safe. You got to keep yourself safe. Don't do that. Don't do that. You're going to, you're going to put yourself out there and then the world's going to be able to hear you. And then, Oh my gosh, what if they're going to say, you know, all the things. Right. And it's like the soul is what's urging you to sing because the soul is saying that's where we feel the most alive. That's where we feel tapped in to the angelic realms. That's where we feel the ultimate vibration inside of our bodies when we're not just moving our vocal cords. We're actually utilizing all parts and aspects of ourselves to expand ourselves and grow ourselves. So the soul, even though the ego is saying, oh, but wait a minute, you, have, you don't understand. It's like the soul is saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but come on, because I got to show you what it feels like. I got to show mm. you how delicious that is. I've been dismayed by a lot of people in the spiritual and wellness realms right now, getting into conspiracy theories and ideas derived from this QAnon, even going so far as to defend the attack on the Capitol and defending uh, Donald Trump and it's just been very depressing for me to watch. So I wonder if you've had any thoughts on this, if you've seen this. I have thoughts, but I also have a question. May I ask you a question? Sure. What, what makes it depressing? Hmm. I think it challenges my view that human beings are reasonable, that we can all see the same things and agree on them. And from my perspective, uh, for instance, Donald Trump is a con man and some of these conspiracies are just transparently ridiculous. So it depresses me that others don't see things from the same perspective that I see them. Mm -hmm. And let's just say for just a moment, what if everyone could see from the same perspective, either your perspective or the perspective of the other that you're talking about? What if everyone could see from that same perspective? What would life be like? I guess we would all agree. <laughs> it would be like a group of my friends and I getting together and uh, having fun agreeing with each other. Yeah, we'd all agree. We'd all agree. And so then, so then there wouldn't really be, if we're all in agreement and we're all navigating through this, yeah, this is, yeah, this is it. This is the thing itself. We're all, we all have the same perspective. Then there wouldn't be any catalyst. There wouldn't, there wouldn't be any chaos. There wouldn't be any upheaval that could push up the BS to the surface, right? Because we're all in mm -hmm. agreement about everything. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm okay with the concept of disagreement as long as it, it's difficult when it's within my family or my tribe or my group of friends, when we're the ones disagreeing with each other, then it becomes that. Sure, sure. There's so many thoughts that I have on this. I'll go with the, the most predominant thought, and that is without the Donald Trumps of the world, without the, the QAnons of the world, without the without the Democrats or the Republicans, without, without all of that diversity, we wouldn't have the complexity of conversations that we currently have. We wouldn't have the opportunities 
to unravel our own thought processes. And if we don't have the, un, the, the, pro, the, the opportunities to unravel our own thought processes, then we continue to live a life that is one that is, let's say, status quo. There's, it's like so many thoughts are coming through right now. It's like there's no, I've, I've, really, I've really practiced using a new muscle over this last year. I realized that I had a real attachment, a real dead set mindset on, okay, this is how things are. And this is how things are not. And I realized that this is how things are and this is how things are not became a very limiting process for me. Because if I know that this is how it is and this is how it's not, then I don't know what I don't know. So therefore nothing is spurring me to explore something different. In this last year, all of those conspiracy theories, and I don't want to say all of them, I don't know what all of them are, but many of them came into my field of experience because I wanted to just explore. I wanted to hear. I wanted to see. I was curious. I didn't want to have a rigid mindset that you're wrong and you're bad and you're twisted and you don't believe what I believe and and it didn't want to have any of that. Instead, I wanted to drop in and I just wanted to observe all of it. I wanted to ask questions. I wanted to create experiences where I'm in conversations with, you know, the ultimate conspiracy theorist and, and that I'm also in the conversation with the ultimate, what we might call Republican or Democrat. I wanted to place myself in those situations because I don't want to pretend that I know what's true until I've done my own homework, until I've done my own due diligence. It's kind of like when everything revved up last year around racism. I wanted to get myself down in that experience as much as I could and ask some really hard questions. And let me tell you, Sam, it was uncomfortable on more than one occasion where I found myself sitting on the floor with groups of people and having conversations about things that quite honestly, I didn't know anything about and I needed to know, I needed to learn and I needed to find out. So I took that same approach down the, you know, down the exploration of conspiracy theorists and what, what is it that, that people are believing. And I went down the path of religiosity and I went down the path of po politics across the board. And it's a very, very humbling place to be in. Today, in this moment, I don't want everybody to agree with me. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right that from the soul's perspective, it would be boring if we all agreed. You know, what would be the point? I often think of this world might be like an amusement park ride that our souls <laughs> are going on. And if it were all safe and if there were no moments of fear, then what would be the point? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's the fear moments. I think it's the unknowns that really, really evolve us, that really cause us to go, hold up, wait a minute. I mean, how many times have you seen it in, in people's lives when they have some sort of catastrophic life experience, whether a car accident or a disease of some sort, and how it can, it has the capacity to transform someone's life. Well, without that, they would have just continued on, maybe perhaps just continued on as life as they knew it and not really needed to change anything. They we're just going to go on and do their thing. But this catastrophic event came up and said, no, no, no. Something's got to shift. Something's got to change. 
you know, back in 2016, I remember having conversations with people about what Trump coming into office represents. And I said, at that particular point in time, it is about <laughs> unforeseen, I think was the word that I used, but it was like a, a whole lot of change is on the horizon. <laughs> like a whole lot of change, a whole lot of shift, a whole lot of we don't know what's about to happen. A whole lot of shift is a polite way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> a whole lot of shift. <laughs> shift is happening. And and it has, and it is, and it and it has been a tremendous catalyst. And I think I feel like the collective consciousness of our world, it may sometimes it looks like it's getting worse before it gets better. But I feel like that there is a massive shift, a massive awake awakening that is happening right now. What if it would not have happened in this particular way if we hadn't had all the chaos and all of the shift that's happened <laughs> in the last four to five years, right? Or yeah. 10 years or 20 years, right? Would it, what if we hadn't had all of those experiences, then, then where would we be today? Would we still kind of be slumbering in our asleep state? Maybe some of us would. Yeah. But I just, my, my decision in, in that whole exercise of going within and just being open to whatever information people wanted to share with me and not about, well, that's what you think. This is what I think. The whole exercise in humility was just to sit, listen, be the observer, learn what I can, hold a space of, of compassionate understanding and walk away going, whoa, I did not know that. Hmm. I did not know. Isn't that something? What else do I not know? Hmm. So my two words for this year are flow and curiosity, right? Because I am welcoming more and more curiosity areas in my life that I just don't know that I know. And I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want to be right. I don't want to know the answers. And I don't want to, I don't want people to agree with me. One <laughs> <laughs> uh. of my teachers said that to me, uh, gosh, in 2013, he was like, he's like, yeah. I just, I, I don't, I don't want people to, to agree with me. I don't want people to put me on a pedestal and, and, and pretend that I know everything or that I know anything. I know nothing. And I just love that process. I know nothing. I want to continue to know nothing and learn all that I can in the process. Well, my ego is screaming that I want to know the answers. I want to be right. And I want everyone to agree with me. But... Isn't that something? That was, that was very much what, um, what was the catalyst. There was a part of my experience back in uh, June of last year, probably June, early July, where I found myself in that space of, I want to know, I want to know, and I want to know, and I need the answers, and I need to know what's right. I need to know what's true. This is too much for me to not believe, you know, it, it's shattering for me if this could be true, let's just say. And that was the moment that I realized my ego needs to take, get in the back seat. Mm -hmm. I just need to just sit down and just be teachable mm -hmm. on, on the deepest level of teachability that I could possibly become. Curiosity. 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 So if your kid comes to you and says that she's seen spirits and talking with dead people, keep an open mind. Yes. Tell me more. What do they look like? What is the conversation like? 
does it, does it frighten you? Does it feel good? Does it feel true? Does it feel, does it, tell me more, tell me more. Because in that we might just learn something more about the experience, but we're also making it right and okay, not right, but we're making it okay for that young person to come and say, I got these things that are happening. I'm experiencing these things. And I want to be able to share it with somebody who can have an open mind and hold space for me to kind of figure it out as we go together. Yeah. Well, Tracy, you offer a very unique perspective to me, kind of the opposite of my skeptical tendencies. <laughs> so I've really appreciated it. You've given me a lot to think about. Oh, thank you, Sam. Thank you so much for this opportunity and for just getting to share space with you. You are such a beautiful soul and bright light in this world and your gifts, your writing gifts are tremendous. And just the way that you hold space and ask questions in this, in this process, in this platform is so beautiful, so beautiful. And I just hope for you that you keep this up and this becomes such a fulfilling process for you. Thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of it. Thanks for listening to Living from the Soul. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and review. This is an ad-free podcast brought to you by my books, which are available at samtorode.com. The theme music was created by Gideon Tarode.